right, everybody. It's Jean Nathan. This is Crosstown Conversations. And, um, you know, there's a lot of energy in the studio today because we have the great big New Orleans Entrepreneur Week program coming up in um, uh, uh, just a little over a week from now. And um, we're, we're going to really sort of dip in a little bit into the programming and who's who's doing what and I have two very very committed energetic terrific women in my studio at the moment and then we're going to move on and have a conversation with one of my favorite um, artists in the universe uh, Keith Sonier who's originally from Louisiana Grandma Moo of all places and um, he has been a major figure in light sculpture uh, worldwide in out of New York for many years, and you're going to find that very interesting. But we're going to get started talking with two women who have elected to try to make sure that our entrepreneurial um, inclinations in this crazy city that we live in um, are uh, nurtured and encouraged and supported. And um, one of them, Kristen... Tell me if I got the pronunciation right. Kristen Trammell. Correct. Good job. Is with the Junior League of New Orleans, and I think it's definitely an indication of where things are going that the Junior League is involved with entrepreneurialism, so we're going to look into that. And um, Haley Burns is the executive director of Fund 17, and 17 refers to all of our wards, so obviously what she's saying is that I'm trying to help um, people throughout the city and not mm-hmm. just in one part or another. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to talk with them about what they're doing as part of New Orleans Entrepreneur Week, um, which is that week that we bring all our young entrepreneurs together and, and give them a chance to pitch for money and other kinds of financial and legal help to get their businesses off the ground, space, whatever. And um, we also talk with um, people about how we're growing our creative economy, and that's kind of the focus of uh, some of the things that uh, I'm doing with the Downtown Development District as part of NOEW. Um, so, guys, either one of you can start first and tell me a little bit about uh, what you're doing. Haley, you want to kick us off? Sure. And um, talk about um, Fund 17 and what you're doing as part of NOEW and, yeah. in general. Yeah, great. So, thanks for having me. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about Fund 17 first. We're a local nonprofit organization, and we help community members start and grow small businesses. I like to say we turn hustles into livelihoods. Um, And I say that because we focus on supporting entrepreneurs that usually have some kind of small business on the side of another job. So um, we work with a lot of creatives, a lot of food entrepreneurs, wide, wide variety, and uh, but there's not a whole lot of resources tailored to people that are in an informal micro hustle stage of business, and that's where we try to come in. And we provide one-on-one assistance on building foundations, so getting those legal registrations if they want them, building an online presence, starting a bookkeeping system, doing some business modeling, all the way up to we're about to launch an accelerator program next month for people that have formalized their business, started to grow, and are now ready to become the boss. So we're really trying to grow a pipeline of services for people to go from hustle to 
a job creator. Um, and for New Orleans Entrepreneur Week, we're hosting an event called Bayou Bazaar. I love that idea, by the way. <laughs> I mean, and I love it. It's, a, it's in the evening, right? Yeah, it's going to be from 6 to 9. Well, so that's great because people who have jobs during the day yeah. um, uh, can still uh, partake. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a lot of our vendors. A lot of the entrepreneurs that uh, have gone through our programs uh, might still be going to their jobs during the day and then coming and setting up to sell awesome bath products and food and uh, and clothing and art. Um, so it's going to be a really great time. Uh, it's, it's being hosted at Fun17's uh, space in an outdoor space. We're a part of the Rose Collaborative, which is a development um, off of Bayou Road. So we're on Columbus Street. And, I'm uh, well familiar with it. I'm the one who actually started it. Oh, okay. I, I was the one who discovered the space and uh, and brought it to life. Uh, we really wanted to have an art center there. It became yes. much more diverse. But yes. Yeah. 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 So you were working with How? I'm assuming. Or I, I brought How into it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Amazing. Yeah. Um, well, that's great to meet you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, we're very grateful to be a part of that project. Um, and uh, but yeah, so the the event Bayou Bazaar is going to be a really great time. Music, food, uh, a bar, come and <coughs> shop, support the local economy, learn more about what Fun Seventeen has going on, but also network with the greater kind of New Orleans Entrepreneur Week network. Let me just uh, help people. I always like people to know exactly where something is and where parking is because I, <laughs> I go or don't go to things depending on whether I know where I'm going to park. Right. So this this rose uh, this whole complex mm -hmm. is right off Broad Street <clears throat> on, on Bayou Road, right next to uh, Vera Warren Williams uh, Community Book Center, mm -hmm. and where a lot of little businesses, small mm -hmm. businesses, have actually popped up over the um, past few years, again, pretty much since Katrina. And uh, it's it's really exploding there. It's a, a lot of really great energy. I, I love what's happening there. So that's a great location to be in. Yeah. So exactly what's going to happen during the program? So it's going to be a three-hour event where people can, you know, kind of – come and go as they, they please in terms of it being a, a night market party. There won't be a you know specific run of show. Um, but in that three hours, we're going to have uh, DJ and live music, and we have a, a bar sponsored by Second Line Brewing and 7-3 Distillery. So you'll be able to come in. Also, the drinks that you'll be having will also be locally provided. Um, there's also a raffle and a silent auction. So proceeds from that, as well as the bar, um, will benefit Fun17's programming. We're going to have a crawfish boil. That's also going to be benefiting. The sales of the crawfish will benefit Fun17. And then the rest of the, um, the marketplace will all be entrepreneurs that have been supported by Fun 17 programs in some way, so people can come and shop and eat and listen to music and network and get their drink on. <laughs> uh, so it'll be a really good time. So uh, give me some examples of some of the um, entrepreneurs mm -hmm. who have come through your program yeah. and where they were when they came in and where they are now. Yeah, so I will start with... Um, Journey Allen, whose art studio is actually right on the corner where we're located. She's on Broad and Columbus. Oh, I know. It's the one that has all the multicolored. Bright colors, yeah, yeah, yeah. super noticeable. She's been on our show. Yeah, yeah she's uh, great. She's uh, from the neighborhood, actually. Mm -hmm. She'll tell you uh, her teenage bedroom is actually where um, the the pink building on Bayou Road is located. She mm -hmm. So she's very much from the neighborhood. And... Um, when we first started working with her, it was uh, 
almost three years ago now, I want to say. And she had just taken the leap of faith on signing the lease to that building, but was really still trying to figure out, you know, what to make of the space and do in the space. She had a lot of different ideas as far as gathering different artists and, and creating a creative space for the community, um, but was also very much so taking a risk financially and um most of her income at the time was coming from face painting, so she would go into the park or set up with different events and, and do face painting. Um, and she's now running the studio full-time, um, has been able to dedicate all of her time to that because it has become financially sustainable. She's actually expanding into the – there's kind of two different sections of the building, um, and she's now expanding into the second side of the studio wow. space. Yeah. Um, she's – uh, doing a artist in residence uh, job uh, out of Houston and traveling there, and her art's being sold in in different places, and she's just exploding, and it's uh, really exciting to see. Um, really grateful to have been a part of you know that journey, um, and you know, but you know, some other kind of examples that I can be more brief about. Um, for example, at Bayou Bazaar, you'll see beautiful balloon decor that we're going to have, and this comes from Nola Party Boutique. Uh, this is another woman entrepreneur whose name is Danielle, and when she first started with us, um, she was still working her regular nine-to-five office job, but her business was really growing. She was getting a lot of contracts doing this awesome balloon decor for different events, um, and after she completed a program with us, was able to leave that other job, do this full time, um, and she's now expanded her contracts as well. And so you'll see uh, her balloon decor in a lot of different places, like events for the Pelicans and things like that. Mm, great. Um, but we've worked with a lot of food entrepreneurs as well that have been able to move into uh, out of their home kitchen into commercial kitchens or being able to access uh, new farmers markets, even if they are still out of their home kitchen. Um, you know, and you know, I'm you know I'm, I'm giving examples of people that have really been able to go from. Um, the, the beginning stages to running their business full-time, but we support so many entrepreneurs on the in-between who um, maybe they don't even want to make this business their full-time job, and they really just want to um, create a more sustainable, profitable um, business on the side, right? And we support that as well, and we really want to kind of see what are your goals and where is it that you want to be with this business and how can we support you and whatever that is? So, uh, you know, it was it was obviously it had to be a pretty big risk for you to take this on in the beginning. <laughs> so I want to know uh, about your motivation, why you decided to do this and um, how did you get up the nerve yeah. to actually create, <laughs> I assume you're a nonprofit. Yes, we are. Yeah. Um, so usually when I get these kinds of questions, I answer it by saying things like, um, I was naive. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Um, you get started thinking it's going to be one thing, and then all of a sudden you're dealing with a million other things, and then you're like, well, I've got myself into this, so you keep going. Um, but the more official answer is that uh, I moved to New Orleans to attend Tulane University and uh, study international development, and I always had an interest in um, uh programs and projects and organizations that were solving social problems of lots of different kinds around the world. My original plan was that I was going to 
go to Tulane, get my degree, and then go somewhere far away and solve these problems. And I really not only fell in love with New Orleans right away and saw it as my new home, but also saw that the things I was studying in the classroom when it came to international development were the same problems that were happening right here in, in New Orleans. Yeah, uh, I often get a little frustrated when I hear about, for example, Bill Gates. Uh, I, I love the fact that he wants to solve um, uh, uh, poverty and, uh, and, and starvation around mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, okay, but Bill, I mean, mm-hmm. really, just look in your, your own backyard, right. especially on the West Coast now where right. you know, housing prices have gotten so completely out of control right. and, and uh, people are having to live under bridges and so on. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I, I, I kind of saw an opportunity um, and I was very interested in particular in a, a concept called microfinance, um, which I had only seen uh, internationally, but I got the opportunity to um, learn about how to apply it here in a fellowship called Lend for America. So got the training in microfinance, and I was still a Tulane student when I started to put the um, pieces in place. And by the time I graduated, took it full time and kind of just been trucking ever since, trying to grow it kind of one little bit at a time. And yeah, you really, I really do think it's true that if, if, if I had known what I was getting myself into, I might not have ever have done it. So the nerve comes from a big place of, of being naive and <laughs> idealistic. And, and then once you're in it, you kind of just have this stubborn part of yourself that says, well, I got to just keep going. And, you're just gonna, <laughs> and you are just going to keep going. Right? Yeah. So, yes. Um, so what you do is not something that is limited, obviously, just to the New Orleans Entrepreneur Week moment, but um, this is an ongoing year-round mm-hmm. effort. So how do people tap into what you're doing during the year? So um, they can go to fund17.org and uh, um, put in an inquiry uh, to have a consultation. That's the first step. We offer free consultations uh, throughout every week. And at that time, we'll sit down with you and hear about your story and your business and or your business idea um, and get an idea of what your needs and your goals are and where we can come in. Uh, we have a variety of programs right now. We're running one and about to launch two others in the spring. So for people that are looking for that foundational help, like I mentioned before, getting legal registrations done or uh, bookkeeping, business modeling, we're very much the the DIY approach. So we're going to teach you how to do it yourself. We're not a professional service provider. But if you want to kind of come and learn how to do these things yourself, we can help you with that. And the two programs that we have coming up, launching in the spring, one is Capital Ready. So this is for the people that want to organize their personal and business finances and connect with a small business lender. Anywhere from I want a $1,000 microloan to I'm getting ready to have my first small business loan of a larger size. Um, that's what that program will be for. And then I mentioned also our accelerator program. Applications are due for that on the 22nd of March, so people can find that application online. Uh, this program is in partnership with Trepwise, a local growth consulting firm. We're really excited to be working with them. And in that program, entrepreneurs will learn to be the boss. So Be, be sure and send me something on that to put in my newsletter. Absolutely. Uh, so I'm just trying to figure out the, 
the days. It's I, uh, next Friday. Okay, good. So yeah. my show, uh, the newsletter, next newsletter goes out on, on Tuesday. So Great. It's not that big, I would assume, an application. Yeah, no, it's it's nothing yeah. too complicated. We just want to get an idea of if you're, where you are at in your business journey is the right fit for this program. And where that's the stage we're looking for uh, is either you're planning to take the business full time in the next three to six months, or you've already done that and you're preparing to hire your first employee in the next six months or so, because uh, all of the content of that program is very much going to be about um, what the hiring process looks like and what can you afford to hire and the differences, the different kinds of options in expanding your team and becoming a manager and, uh, you know, kind of all of the different things of, like I said, becoming the boss and all the different skills and systems you need for that. Fantastic. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled with what you're doing. And, Thank you. Um, you're not the only organization in town that's offering that kind of service, mm-hmm. but I love the fact that your name is Fund 17 <laughs> and it's about all 17 wards, and I presumably you really try to reach out across the city and yeah. make sure that – um, you're giving everybody a, a shot at it. Absolutely. Kristen Trammell, Junior League of New Orleans. I have yes. to say, when I saw Junior League and then I saw um, entrepreneurial in the in, in, in same sentence, I said, this is, a, this is not your mother's, uh, as I said, this is not your mother's Junior League. This is definitely a new um, phase in the life of that institution. Or maybe I'm being unfair to people in the past who have been working there. So um, tell me about how this happened that Junior League took on this role and tell me what your program is doing. I 100% agree with you. What really drew me to this program specifically was that idea that this old school mentality of the Junior League and cookbooks and home tours, which is wonderful, but that's not what we are doing now. Now, pretty much 99% of our members, we have 2,100 members in our New Orleans League, they work. So we are interested in other things. What percentage? 99%. Yes. That Um, that says a lot. Yes. So we are, you know, we really had to pivot and represent who we are as a league now, and that's what I was really attracted to with this program and why I've been part of it for three years. This year is my first year um, chairing. The WE Fellowship, um, what we do is very similar. We are open to all women-owned businesses in New Orleans, and there is some stipulations, like you have to be in business under five years and only make a certain amount of money, um, because we are, our goal is to help them grow and hopefully be able to hire more women in the community. So it's a very easy application online, and then we choose five finalists. These finalists also work similar to you guys um, with Trepwise Consulting. They're a wonderful organization, and they really help them put together a pitch, um, more like a PowerPoint presentation. And I think of it kind of like Shark Tank, but a lot friendlier. So then during the New Orleans Entrepreneur Week, they will stand up there in front of an audience and angel investors and their peers, and they will present this um, their business and their goals for the future, what they want to do with the money. The money is a $7,500 grant, 
And in addition to that, they get a whole year of mentorship through the Junior League. So we have all these I wonderful the resources. The, the mentorship that, uh, that uh, these programs provide is really um, almost more important than the cash because the cash comes and goes. But that men mentor mentoring process um, instills uh, ideas and, and, and uh, ways of doing things that people are going to live with for the rest of their lives. Yeah, absolutely. So we provide these in-kind services, but we also help them, you know, get a trademark if they need or help them figure out their books or really just help them figure out the vision for their company, you know, where they want to be, what is their ultimate goal. So it's, I think it's a wonderful program, and more importantly, I think it does really highlight the league in a new way and kind of showcase that we are you know, we're not your mama's junior yeah, league. This right. is 2019, and we do um, do a lot more than that. So. Tell me about um, the finalists that uh, are going to pitch uh, at NOEW, and tell me place and time and all that. Yeah, so this year, um, as part of NOE, they are doing a kind of a different concept. It's called NOE in the Neighborhood. So they'll have their main events on Thursday and Friday, I believe, and then they'll have smaller events in different parts of the community. So we are actually at NOLA Brewery on Monday at 6 o'clock, um, and that's when we'll have our, our Shark Tank-type pitch event. Um, all five of the finalists will present. We are very industry agnostic, so we're open to anyone in any industry. Traditionally, just because I think it's New Orleans, our finalists have been more food-based, but this year we have... Um, we have a women-owned gym. We have a mobile plant um, a, a shop. Yeah, shop. Really? Yes, exactly. Sorry. Um, a lot of different. We do have, you know, some people in food. A lot of different industries. So we're excited that we're reaching different industries and attracting more women. Um, and just kind of promoting this. And great um, you know, I have sat idea. through quite a few pitches, and uh, I work closely with the Downtown Development District, and this is our seventh year doing uh, NOEW, and um, we've did pitch contests almost every year. We're not doing one this year, but yeah. it's phenomenal to listen to people pitch their businesses, and especially from the first day that we meet them when they're first trying to be uh, chosen, and then when they've been trained by somebody like Trepweiser or whoever the company happens to be that's doing the working with them to get them up to speed and their, um, what their program is like. And um, uh, it's, it's, it's really interesting to hear their passion um, and their, their, their vision and, and how they're going about doing what they're doing. Tell me some of the strengths and pitfalls that uh, these very small companies are faced with, both of you, and, um, and, and how you have uh, tried to help them uh, to overcome them. Well, honestly, some of it is just money. You know, they're very small businesses. A lot of them are startups. Most of these women work other jobs. So $7,500 can really go a long way to help them move their business into a new level or quit their day job, kind of like how you guys do, and really take this full time. I mean, that's really a huge hurdle. And a lot of these women, you know, they don't have, kind of like me, none of my family members own small businesses. I wouldn't even know where to begin. And they're kind of the same way. They have these great ideas. They might have some background, but they don't really know what the next steps are where the resources are, how to go there, or just, you know, 
what to do next. So I think the mentoring and just having that support and hooking them up with a community of women that can say, oh, I I've just went through this. Let me get you in touch with this person, or it's going to be okay. You'll make it through. Um, I think those kind of relationships are feeling, just as important. Uh, uh, helping them feel a little bit less lonely. Yeah, what, and empowered. Uh, yeah, and 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 um, how to to work their way into it. But but guys, I have to tell you, um, the, the first one, Haley came in uh, the room. I, she was saying, you know, she's doing this because this is such an entrepreneurial city, and I'm saying. Wow, really? That's not, <laughs> that's not my uh, perception of New Orleans. It's, we're not one of the most entrepreneurial cities in the country, although she has some statistics that <laughs> challenge my um, perception. Always ready with the data. But my perception, you know, um, a lot of people call, you know, we, we have this phrase, the, the big easy, which, by the way, I think it's Art Neville, the musician who mm. actually coined that phrase. My husband has a different version. He says it's a little difficult. <laughs> and we all know that there's, there, there is not a, a deep, deep um, a, a culture of entrepreneurialism and a lot of money that is available. The resources are not just spilling out of coffers. We don't have venture capitalists walking down the streets the way they do in San Francisco. So I, I worry sometimes that we have a kind of – Oh, y'all, go out there and be an entrepreneur. Yay. And, uh, you know, it's it's not that easy. I, and it's not that easy in New Orleans. Yeah, it's definitely not easy. Um, but I do think we have to challenge this definition of entrepreneurship. Um, and And it's not necessarily about pushing people out there to go pitch and find venture capital and launch these giant new ideas. Um, you know, before the show started, we... Although we, you have people like the guy who started Kickstarter out of New Orleans, right? He, he's not doing so badly. Right. <laughs> yeah, we have a few success stories. Uh, yeah. But, you know, before the show started, we were talking about, uh, you know, Fund 17, the entrepreneurs we work with, you were saying, well, I don't know if that's necessarily entrepreneurship. I think it's something else. And we were talking about, you know, hustle and survival. And um, it very much so is hustle, and we talk about that a lot, and we try to target people that exactly use that word and have a hustle. Um, but to me, entrepreneurship is about making a lot out of little or making something out of little, um, seeing, you know, when, when an opportunity isn't in front of you that you create it yourself. And New Orleans is, a, is little difficult. It is a city of a lot of challenges, um, inequality. Uh, a lot of people don't have la uh, access to the necessary resources that they need to have. Um, but still find a way to make amazing art, amazing food, amazing music. And to me, that's entrepreneurship. And that's why I think New Orleans is such an amazing entrepreneurial city. Um, but, you know, you put your finger on it, and this is something that I often raise because you have people like, you know, the Gina Wink people all saying, oh, we're such an entrepreneurial city, and all these tech people have come here. And I say, um, really? Again, I don't think it's tech people so much mm -hmm. as the creatives. Mm -hmm. We are a very creative city. I've worked with kids in the high schools, and it is astounding mm -hmm. the level of creativity amongst the kids. But um, we still have not really uh, honed in on how to help build basically the creative industries mm -hmm. in the city. Mm -hmm. So uh, I find that a challenge, and, and, mm -hmm. and I actually would love to see a survey of not just your organization and yours, but others that are trying to do what you're doing and how many of the entrepreneurs that they're working with are, in fact, creatives. Yeah. Well, I can tell you that 20%, uh, this, was, this was the number that we pulled up um, 
the end of last year that 20% of the entrepreneurs we had worked with up until this point were food entrepreneurs. Um, and I don't know the number off the top of my head of creatives, but a lot, a lot of the businesses we work with are artists of some kind or designers, uh, uh, cre- you know, creative in some way. So, uh, yeah, it is, it, again, it's kind of going back to that, um, you know, who are we calling entrepreneur and what kind of entrepreneurial resources are we trying to provide? Well, the gentleman who's coming into the booth at just a couple of minutes after you is a creative, an artist from Louisiana who, um, at, when he started working, um, I think probably found it was it was beneficial for him to move on to New York. Mm. Our whole objective now is to try to keep folks like him here yes. so that that, that creative um, scene can mm. grow and be of a great resource to people right here. So that's, that's where we're going to go next. Okay, ladies, here's what I need you to do. Uh, give me the facts again, time, place, yeah, and how people can reach you to get information. Yes, yeah, so Fun 17 hosting Bayou Bazaar on March 28th at 6 p.m. Uh, it's at 2533 Columbus Street, and you Which can is learn just off Broad, just <laughs> off Broad Street, and you can learn more by going to Fun 17, which is fund17.org. Uh, Junior League Kristen. of New Orleans, uh, we Entrepreneur Fellowship Pitch Night. We are at Nola Brewery on Chop at 6 p.m. on March 25th. And you can find us on the NOE website or at jlno.org. Thank you very much for what you do. Thank you. Stay in touch with me. Um, Send some of your graduates to uh, come on the show and talk about what they're doing, promote what they're doing. Um, That's what we do here. We promote and marketing what the uh, folks of the city, especially the creatives, are doing. Mm -hmm. But anybody who's got a business that they're trying to grow in this city, I, I all power to them, and we'll do whatever we can to help. So thank you very, very much. Thank you. And I am now going to invite Mr. Sonier, who I've known for too many years, to come into the studio and come have a conversation with me that will pick up on a conversation we had many, many years ago, which he probably forgot, but I didn't. And so we'll talk about that in just a second. But you should look up Keith Sonier. And by the way, he has a show opening Friday at the New Orleans Museum of Art. It's retrospective. And he's a light sculptor, among other things. So I think you'll enjoy You should come out Friday night between 6 and 9. Open the door for them so that they know that they should come in. And um, we will proceed. Yeah. Thank you guys very much for coming over here. I want to talk to you, too. Yeah, we're, we're talking offline, definitely. We're, we're going to get together because um, a lot of what we do is very uh, – you, you looked at my organization and you see what we do, the Creative Alliance of New Orleans, Cano. Cano. Yeah. Okay, let's open that door and get uh, Keith Sonier in here. Thank you, ladies. Thank you so much. Um, so uh, I, as we're waiting for Keith to come in, I just want to call everybody's attention to the fact that the uh, show that he's going to be talking about is opening at the New Orleans Museum of Art this Friday, and it's a... Uh, you can sit right there. Hi, come on in. So this, this, this gentleman here, um, who's uh, almost as old as me, no, I'm kidding, he's a couple years older than me, <laughs> is, uh, again, from Grand Mamou, right? Grand Mamou. 
Louisiana. We're going to put the earphones on, but I'm hearing absolutely nothing. I just want you to know. Yeah, it's still they're all off. Yeah, or maybe I'm 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 probably it's me. I'm not very. I talk about tech. I am the least tech savvy person in the universe. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing. Yeah, you see, they all say all. Okay. Yeah, but it really doesn't matter. Hi, Keith. Hi, dear. Now, I want you to uh, get that mic situated so that you can talk uh, as you wish, and they'll be here. Able to hear. You can stay in here if you'd like or not. Okay, either way. Um, let's see. I put in my newsletter, which you probably have not seen because you probably don't look at newsletters online, I'm sure, um, that the last time we had a conversation on broadcast was in 1977 for the Louisiana Five, Five five from Louisiana show at the New Orleans Museum of Art. Exactly. And you and I did a little walkthrough. Right. I still have the video from that. Oh, interesting. I do. And, um, of course, what was so terrific about that show was the other people who were in it with you, Linda Benglis, who, by the way, um, her flight was canceled because of the snowstorm out west. So she's not coming in, unfortunately. Um, Tina Gerard. Right. Dickie Landry. Ida Kohlmeyer. Right, of course. And um, and all of these folks are people who've been part of my life ever since, one way or another. Right. And uh, and here you are, back in New Orleans, with a retrospective. Exactly. How does it feel to have a retrospective? Well, um, for one thing, of course, it you know it feels very good, and it's very interesting to see that. It's here in New Orleans because the origins to my work are really Louisiana-based. I had the first show at the parish, which is um, in Southampton, Watermill, New York. And we addressed some of the um, sculptural and light issues that I became interested in by the time I did that show. I had traveled to Europe many times, worked in Europe, and had been to India several times and to China. So I'd at least been, I was out of grow my mood, darling. I made, yeah. <laughs> I was blessed in a lot of ways, but mainly that I grew up in Louisiana. So I've read in the press release that the museum put out that one of the first influences on you in terms of wanting to use light in your work and and, and audience, this is one of the things that um, Keith is is well known for, and that is integrating uh, light and the technology of light in his work along with a lot of other things that we'll talk about. Um, But that it was the rice fields in South Louisiana and the light on them that kind of had a – an impact on you. Tell me about that. Yeah. Well, in order to have that experience, um, I grew up in this area where my um, grandparents were some of the first people that did homesteading and actually grew rice. And, uh, you know, this was pre the soybean days when there was, you know, people being paid to plant or not to plant. And my dad did have uh, 
My dad had a hardware store, and my mom began as a florist. Your, your dad had a hardware. Linda's dad had hardware. Yeah. Shannon's dad had right. hardware. What is this hardware connection? Well, the thing is, hardware was... Goes along with farming. Goes along with farming, and uh, not only that, driving, uh, you know, m- m- uh, moving, uh, household. You know, you can't function... Even a simple household without a picking store. up something at the hardware store. Right. Yeah. Uh, Tannen, uh, Bob Tannen is yes. in and out of um, the hardware store on Rampart Street yes. just about every other day. Yes, right. And um, my dad ran a rather unique business because he was an eccentric person to begin with. And... Uh, he and my mom had a pretty unique relationship. They um, rarely fought, and they both had very innate in their personality a kind of feeling that they had to do something in the community. They were it was a uh, they were impressed by their parents that they had to give something back, hmm. and this was. Something very unusual. My dad, uh, you know, growing up with a Cajun father, uh, men cook. My dad um, had a very unique talent of reading constantly. So when people came into my dad's store, he'd be sitting in his rocking chair next to an old Coke machine. And they would say, Joe in the patouage, and these the little screw, and said, third shelf to the right on the back row. <laughs> Leave the money on the register. I'm busy. And <laughs> this would go on with his day. And there was always like a little six- or five-year-old boy with him because my aunt had a child that had... Um, um, Kind of a learning disability. He had a learning disability. Mm-hmm. He had one of those. He had polio as a child. Oh. And so uh, his nickname was Bosco. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, it was him, Bosco, and uh, television sets. There were about six TV sets going on because my dad sold TVs. <laughs> and then Bosco became later on. A pool sharp, he became very good. But Bosco's mother, my Aunt Evangeline, was also a very unique sister of my mother's who was a big supporter of the leper colony. Um, uh, about Carville? 50, yes, yeah. about 50 miles out of Mamu. Sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, she would go once a month to bring clothes and to the leper colony to mm-hmm. talk to the lepers and to mm-hmm. deal with the... Um, the priests who ran the plantation um, where the colony was situated. Because in those years, leprosy was all over America. Hmm. Uh, it's surprising that. that, you know, we knew that. And years ago, they thought there was a cure from marsupials, like, and Louisiana has several well known marsupials. Uh, Is that pine, like, would that be like armadillos? Armadillos, uh-huh. uh, rac- raccoon. I think raccoon. No, raccoon is not a marsupial. It's a mammal. Um, so there was a reason um, 
for, uh, for them. There. But so, so Keith, are you telling me that basically you you came from a family of fairly unique people? Never who went to school. They shaped never. their own yes. way of dealing right. with the world. Yes, and. They were adored by the townspeople in their own unique kind of personality. People loved my dad, and people would come to see him for advice on what they might do with their meager little farm or whatever. And my mom had a political side. She was began as a florist. But uh, she loved politics. And if she had been a man, she would have been in politics. Mm. And so she constantly had meetings with the mayor, and who's Mr. Kazan, who ran the Kazan Hotel. He looked like uh, a Mississippi gambler, you know, <laughs> with the black mustache and the hair slicked back. And so my mother, my mother had a very unique name. Her name, married name was May Sonier, but her uh, pre-married name was May Ledoux. 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 Mm-hmm. And her father was killed in an early oil rigging uh, accident because oil rigs in that time even were dangerous. Out, and they were made out of wood. They still are, but and they were made out of wood. They were made out of wood. Oh and my he God. died, and he had a very interesting. His name was Grover Mouton. Related to the Grover Mouton we know here in New Orleans? Oh, my God. Now I know. Now I've got a, a trail on the eccentricity. Right. right. How did this affect your evolution as an artist? The thing is, is that it was never a question of my dad or my mom said, now, you have to be a doctor or a lawyer, because neither one of them had been to college. And my dad would say, well, you know, some people like going to school. I like to learn things myself. I'm not so interested in people telling me what to do. And my Sounds mom, like another artist right. I know that I live with. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Right. And uh, my mom was also very different, but she also had this civic duty, she felt, to the town. And she had a unique talent like her sister's. They were they had great voices, and they sang in the church choir mm-hmm. in Latin. In Latin, oh my God! And <laughs> they were very friendly. My mom, in particular, with several um, black women who had been opera stars, mm. married to one to the principal of town, um, several other people, and they all sang together. And when they rocked. It was like amazing, glorious. Because there was this. Are there any recordings? I I don't know, and mm. they had a Canadian priest because they had to have several sermons in French because so people many people spoke French then. Only spoke the French, right. so it was very interesting. And my mom became friendlier with the women in the choir, and the priest would say things like, um, "Now, ladies, we have it was Easter communion or something." Um, uh, members of the choir, the black members are going to go first uh, to get communion, and then the white women will go in the choir. And my mom stood up and she says, well, there's a little problem. We're not all black or yeah. all white. No, no I'm <laughs> <saying>, one. <laughs> we all going together, me and my sisters. 
And so, <laughs> so they went together, and it was fabulous. It was great. Yeah. Um, and now, I'm still trying to get to how this affected you as an artist. Okay. So, <laughs> I love hearing these stories. Right. But. Well, the thing is, is that I had no um, – it's not like I had a plan and there was no art school in school or anything like that. So I basically had a lot of free time. I was a middle child. It allowed me a lot of time. And I was lucked out in that I had very eccentric and unique teachers as well. And and, and your folks, it sounds like what you're saying is that they gave you the room and the freedom to yes. develop as you wanted. Exactly. And That's there were so no, important. There were no hold bars that you had to be this, you had to be that. So it changed things quite a lot in the household. And we all participated. I have two other brothers. One is dead now. And... Um, we had a very interesting community life. We all pitched in and did stuff. I can still remember my dad bringing his cafe lait in the morning in bed, which was quite a luxury. And we'd hide the dogs and the covers, and it was a great place to experience this. You still go back there, don't you? I do go back. I go back last. I really have decided to move out of New York and move permanently in the Bridgehampton area mm -hmm. because now I can work with artisans and technicians directly and they come to the studio. Mm -hmm. So making art, I'm still doing shows and still making new bodies of work. You know, I think most of the people have the image of the Hamptons as being a place of, you know, big houses and high social, but they were agricultural fields. Absolutely. And so the, the ecology yes. is very similar right. in a way to South Louisiana. That's true. Yeah, very true. So you must feel in a way very much at home. In uh, very much at home and incredibly, you know, with the, um, I never had the kind of access to the ocean that I have uh, in the East Coast. But in Mamu, I had the rice fields. And... Of course, a car. We were driving at 13. We'd drive, you know, 10, 15 miles. And we'd go out at night to the clubs. We could drink at 15. <laughs> I'd go to a nightclub and order, a, it was called the setup, like a fifth bourbon and some 7-Up or Cokes. And I would watch Otis Redding live. Oh, wow. Ten, like 10 feet What was away. he doing in Grand Mamou? He was on the circuit. People, you know, uh, played music all through the South. Right. And men and women both performed. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm going to stay steadfast on my mission here yeah. to see the connection right. between this lifestyle, which, by the way, that's why I'm here in Louisiana. Yeah. I don't know if you know this, but the, my very first visit here... My first experience was at a Cushondelet yeah. in Butte La Rose. Right. That um, Tina wasn't there uh, at the time, and not, I'm not going to remember the whole crowd, but um, Tannen worked with yeah. several of the people in that group. Right. We went to it, and um, uh, Tannen had already decided he was going to hang here. He right. wasn't coming back to the East Coast. Right. And so I'm looking at this and saying, yeah, I think I can do this. Right. <laughs> right. It was definitely very inviting yeah. uh, situation. So I, I understand a little bit about what you're talking about, but I still want to get to how do you get from that 
to being an really artist. quite agricultural background, and yes, a certain amount of freedom and and looseness in in the structure of your life to making the kind of art that you make. And I want to hear you talk about the kind of art that you make before the show is over. Right. Well, uh, as my experience as a kid growing up in Louisiana and my schooling and my visualization, uh, a, a good friend of my family was called Shardy the Sign Painter. Who? Shardy the Shardy? Sign Painter. The sign painter. That was Tana's nickname as a child. Really? Because <laughs> he had really black, black hair. Right. And um, he painted on the side of rice dryers and cotton gins that were corrugated. So when you drove by, they sort of moved. Oh. And so in the local town of Gromamu, on one side he painted heaven, and on the other side he painted hell. And it was a wooden structure made to look like an old cathedral. And when the wind would blow, the Celotex ceilings would shake a bit. So it looked like the angels were flying, shimmering up. And it was like this unique experience. It was quite nice. And Shardy's, you know, paint truck was filled with buckets of paint and stepladders and stuff. And this, to me, was my first picture of what an artist might do. And it seemed very appealing. like. In- and, and what's interesting about it is that it was, obviously the man ha- had to have a creative um, soul. Yes. But he was working in a commercial context. Yes. And using light... And all of the industrial materials that are characteristic of your work, work. somehow mixed right, seemed right. like it was okay to do. It was like no based on hard, having seen him do. Yeah, it. no holds barred. You know, whereas when you go to school, oh no, like I remember when I first went to university, you know, um, you can't do that. You have to, you know, it has to. Artwork can only be up to at least fifty inches. You can't have it uh, <laughs> up. And I said, well, suppose your artwork sticks out from the wall two feet up at 50 inches. I hope you have a good lawyer because you could be sued. <laughs> so it was an interesting thing to look at material in a different way. I had never looked And at, to come off the wall. And to come off the wall. And to, since what materials were made of and how they function. Most importantly, you know, the idea of the radio was so fascinating to me and how important the radio as a young child to me uh, and my upbringing. I can still remember my grandmother walking around. She had hearing problems, so she carried the radio like right next to her head. and she had, um, she was a very well-known healer of the old days, not making food, not a traiteur, but someone who treated for illness of the soul. So the local doctor would call me and say, um, her nickname was Ujess, he said. It was what? Ujess. Ujess. Coming from... Um, Eugenia or something. And the doctor was Dr. Sawa and he'd say, Ecoute, j'ai un problème. 
I have this woman I can't cure. I, you have to give her the cure. So the doctor was sending her to a soothsayer. And soothsayer, but in, in, in Cajun country, there's a special name for that? What is that name for? Traiteur. Right. Yeah. Traiteur. But it wasn't a treater for food. Now that traiteurs, but it's for fancy food, you know. Preparing dishes and all the shops we go to now are specialty lunches and all of that. So um, this kind of treating became very important. Hmm. And um, she was a very um, independent woman. She lived alone for about 20 years when my grandfather died. My grandfather's name was Bacchus. Bacchus. Bacchus? as in God of Wine. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> or right now, our parade by that name. Okay, now, I am going to really, I'm going to um, shake my stick. All right. Describe your work. Okay. Uh, the first time I really began to make artwork and sensed it was, um, in a curious way, not in this country, but in India. I had gone to India to work with a family that worked with American artists, European artists, called the Sarabai family, and they had a foundation in Ahmedabad. Here's where uh, 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 the great... Um, Linda and Anand. Yeah, and the ashram of uh, the, great <laughs> Indian, <laughs> the great Indian... A philosopher oh. for peace. Okay. And I stayed there a couple of months. Mm-hmm. And it's where I felt I could make and do anything I wanted to. And the the workers who were helping me make the work would say, oh, oh, man, this is Kali. Or this is, they, they were giving God's names to the pieces I was making. Oh, whoa. And it just completely... You know, I thought blew your mind. Blew my mind, and um, I was fascinated by bamboo because I grew up with bamboo, Mm -hmm. and so I made my first bamboo work in India. Hmm. I had never really made artwork in uh, Louisiana. I mean, I had done a few, you know, like high school decoration things and stuff, but not. But it was churning in your mind. Yes, it was definitely there because. I had a uh, a very inventive mother who made all kinds of things. She was constantly making things that uh, she might need or that was necessary in some aspect of work that she was working on. And um, And so that was another part of how you came to use so many different kinds of technology and materials because uh, – I want people to know that your work is not like a pretty painting on the wall. It is work that used that that shows the the ingredients, the technology that hold things together and that support light and other elements that are um, the heart of what you're trying to show. Yes, and that we all live with. <laughs> uh. The town was uh, my only input into thoughts 
you know, before I started to travel, it was, don't forget, 5,000 people, uh, that I, I saw Neon for the first time. Oh. And it was at a nightclub called the Holiday Inn, which behind <laughs> it, <laughs> behind it had rice fields. The, the, <laughs> the Holiday Inn as 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 a uh, inspiration yes. for art. I yeah. love that. And behind it were the rice fields. Yeah. And so the neon would flash onto oh, the rice fields wow. and flash and flash and extend over the horizon. Yeah. And this appealed to me. Interesting. I thought, well, I wonder how one could recreate that. And that's where. It wasn't, oh, I have to make this artwork like this person. I wanted to make a phenomenon. Right. I wanted to recreate an experience. And light. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And create, allowing myself to create an experience that there was no definition to art. It was, I wanted to recreate an experience. And, and what you did when you started doing that kind of work, Keith, nobody else was doing that, right? No, no. Definitely not in my hometown. So, I mean, that, that again, brings in that whole element of courage and risk and, you know, moving beyond any kind of boundaries and, and doing something that you'd never seen before, I'd except never, in, in your interpretation in of my, that natural phenomena. Exactly. And I had the unique experience of great eccentric high school teachers who imbued me with the idea that art making could become part of one's life and one could give something to someone by showing them how to experience this impression. I am, I'm writing a book now with an English poet friend of mine that discusses a lot of my early teachers uh, growing up in Mamu. One, Miss Baby Smith, was just amazing. I don't think I can remember, but maybe one or two of my teachers' names. Yeah. So they must have really impressed yeah. you. Impressed. And Miss Baby uh, had a son my age and another son that was an architect and another son that woman and um, who was our, my librarian. And Miss Baby would walk into the class, and she only wore fuchsia. And she'd say, kids, I'm so depressed today. And we haven't had sun in three days. We are going to sing every class today. Oh, wow. And, she, and she'd roll in out a whole... We're oh, not talking about some fancy no. art program no. in lower Manhattan. No. And she'd roll out this old Steinway. That was an upright Steinway that had been painted white over the years and and we'd you know, we'd sing everything from arithmetic to You sang spell. the arithmetic. Yeah. Right. Maybe I would have passed math if I right. had done that. <laughs> right. Can you take a exactly. picture of us? Exactly. And that's what started. And curiously, her children, one was my age, we walked to school together. The older son was an architect, uh, well-known architect who did very impressive, unique kinds of architectural moves. And who the, was that? That wasn't Nearboss, was it? Uh, no, his name was uh, no. Uh, his name is Ashton Smith. He might still be alive. 
And then his sister, Marlene Smith, was my librarian, who was very unique and um, had a physical malfunction. But in Louisiana, no, people with eccentricities in those days were included as part of life. And I can still remember my uh, librarian saying, now kids, I've ordered some records of, that are classical. I want each one of you, boys and girls, to spend at least 15 to 30 minutes listening to classical music. Let's just switch the Zodico channel for a while. <laughs> and it was very interesting having this. The contrast. And the contrast. And Marlene had a great sense of humor. Like she'd walk into a typing room because our typing was all army typewriters, full caps. Looked like a telegram. And she'd walk into the room with her dress slightly askew because of her illness. And... Um, She'd say, whose horse is this in the room? And there was a white horse just standing with all the typewriters clicking away. And one of the kids said, oh, it got hot. And she just walked in. (laughs) (laughs) You know what's fascinating about this conversation that we've been having? When I think of your work, again, I think of the materiality of it. I think of the... Um, kind of exposure of the skeletal elements. Yes. I think of the light. Um, but you're talking about people. People. And yeah. how much the right. people influenced right. who you are, how you think, and how yes. you create. The characters of the people were amazing in the stories. My mother's uh, sisters were amazing. You know, they were raised by a woman during the Depression whose husband died. You know, she had to raise five kids. Mm. And who I never knew, you know, she uh, died when I was still a child. So it it was really about the resilience of people, too, that had an impact on you. Let me ask you this. When you get to New York, okay, because I I don't remember how old you were when you started working in New York. and, and, And here you're just bombarded with this incredible panoply of humanity. I mean, yes. just all kinds of right. people. Yes. What was your What was your instinctive initial reaction to all of that coming from this context of your 5,000-person town of special, yeah. unique, eccentric, resilient people? How, how did you... Well, How did I, you bridge that gap? How I, did was, you, I was very lucky in that... I had gotten a scholarship uh, to Rutgers because in those years you could still be teaching assistants and that kind of stuff. These days, over being artists, you know, where you have some kind of income, they're just too many. The factory's gotten too big. And I was very lucky in the fact that one of my uh, professors in Lafayette, where I'd gone to school, he says, look, I know the director of Rutgers, who's a famous printmaker, and they're still hiring assistants to teach. He says, now, Sonia has a minor in um, anthropology. Um, You did? Yeah. Well, I studied (laughs) anthropology. You see, it's still, it's all back to people. Yeah. That's so funny. And I was just so fascinated by it, because, you know, 
we found arrowheads in the backyard. You found what? Arrowheads. Oh, I mean, arrowheads, yeah. There were so many Indian tribes. Right. So it was very important. I don't think there's um, – uh, one of the things I noticed when I first came south is how many people that I encountered had Native American blood. Yes, Because there was so much intermarriage. Right, right. And um, finally I came east, and I, re- and I had lost weight because I wasn't eating properly. And um, I lost something like 65 pounds. And it actually uh, – I hired two assistants – Katharina, one who's sitting outside now, and Leslie Rice, they became producers for me selling work and doing books. And we've been working together for several years now. And they came down to set up the show. So that's another thing that you do in your work is that you collaborate with yes. a team of people. Yes. Oh, and uh-huh. collaboration. I didn't, I didn't know that. Collaboration for all contemporary artists is especially if you're in filmmaking or sound or anything, it's very important. You can't do this. You have to work with technicians. You have to work with other people. Mm -hmm. So that became very important. And I love being East, quite frankly. I found it very interesting. And um, when I went to New York for the first time, we had gone to New Brunswick first because Rutgers is in New Brunswick about an hour, 45 minutes out of New York. And when I went to New York, I thought, oh, God, it's just fabulous. And I told my mom, I said, I'm going to New York. She says, well, darling, you're going to have to take a little gent first to Normandy, where the Saunier's are from, and get rid of that patois. <laughs> Did you do that? <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. So <laughs> I went because she was friends with a nun in Mamu who taught the Montessori method. Uh-huh. And she said, look, Keith can't just go off to college. He has an education and learn how to speak French, Joe. So, Keith, we, uh, I, I, could, I could sit here and I think we could probably talk for about the next six hours <laughs> and not even touch on uh, the, the whole story of you and your work. But I, I've, I, I, my engineer is signaling to me that um, she's, she's got two kids waiting to go home. Right. And she's actually the general manager of the station, right. too. So I pay very close attention right. to whatever she very says and good. wants, right? Yeah. But um, what I want to do is, is, is remind everybody of why we're having this conversation, which has to do with the fact that you have your retrospective show opening at the New Orleans Museum of Art in City Park, y'all. This Friday, between 6 and 9 o'clock, okay? And um, I, I really want people who are listening to us to go see that work. You, you, you've, you'll understand when you see it why I've expressed so much surprise at the things I've been hearing from Keith about his childhood and trying to make the connection between all of these people and characters in your life and the work, which is... I I, I hesitate. I'm not a curator, so I can't really describe work well. But it it is very ethereal in some ways. It is very um, realistic in a certain uh, – But it's not a painting hanging on the wall. It is. You know what? That's the closing words. 
Your work is not a painting on a wall. So I urge you all, including Susan Henry's young creative kids that are in the room here, to go see that show Friday between 6 and 9 at the New Orleans Museum of Art. And you will have um, an experience that will promise some of the eccentricity that, that uh, Keith Sonier has grown up with and has expressed through his work. This has been Crosstown Conversations. Susan was so generous to let us run over. I was warned that Keith was going to be tired and he wasn't going to want to talk too long. I knew that wasn't going to mean a damn thing, and it didn't. We had a wonderful time. I look forward to continuing this conversation. We're going to do it again. Great to see you. And add to this. Yeah. And um, uh, this will be available online. In our podcast for Crosstown Conversations, you go to YouTube and it's there. I'm no expert in how to find things, but you'll find them. And uh, it will be there for posterity. Right. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. And I know you're tired because you flew in today, right? Yes. Okay. Well, you enjoy your visit here in New Orleans. Thank you very much. And when you get to the park, you haven't seen Linda's Wave yet, have you? I haven't. You're going to love seeing yeah. it. You're going to love seeing the right. park and what's uh, and, the, right. and the museum and what's going on there. Right. Very good. Thank you. Great to see you. Very much.